Puritan Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions at the age of 19. And he read each of those resolutions every week for 35 years to discipline himself unto godliness. We're only going to read two. Okay? But I think two that are important, even to the introduction of our sermon this morning. Edwards resolved, number 29, never to count that a prayer, nor to let pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of a prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it. Basically, he resolved to pray in faith that God would answer it. Number seven, Edwards resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Let that one sink in there. I think that Jonah would have understood Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Because Jonah's story starts out with a prayerless disobedience that leads him downward and nearly to death. If you look with me in chapter 1, you can see Jonah's downward descent. In verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Here in verse 3, we can see that Jonah goes down into selfish defiance. Joppa or Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship to sleep away his disobedience. And then in verse 12, 12 through 15, we can see him also going downward in his emotional state, in his thinking, in his actions. Verse 12, it says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea itself grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him down, right, down into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The mariners, it says, threw him into the sea, but in reality we know that it was God himself who plunged Jonah down into the sea of repentance. But even before that, you can see that Jonah was going down in verse 12, down into selfish pity and disobedience. And this last adventure downward here was ultimately into the hand of God's grace. In chapter 2, we see him go no further down. He stops. God stops him. The prayerless prophet is stopped here. What's amazing to me is the prayerless prophet becomes a lot like the Apostle Paul here. He begins to pray without ceasing. And he is downcast. And he is finally facing his death. The very thing he said he wanted, but in reality when he reflected upon his condition before God, his disobedience to God, this frightened Jonah. 
this downward descent was to death. He understood death was coming. And God used that to bring about a repentance in his heart. Do you understand what that means? Do you, do you think about that? Do you live in light that, of the truth that death is coming? Death is imminent. If you live in light of that, are you living to the glory of your Redeemer? The one who brought you salvation. When Jonah was faced with the fact that he was going to die, he was filled with regret, and we can see also repentance, because he had offended his God, his God, he calls him, in chapter 2. Think about that for a minute. If you were to be faced with the imminent threat of death this morning, do you want your last act on earth to be one of defiant disobedience to your Savior or active obedience to the Lord Jesus. You know, you're facing that. No one here knows if you will walk out the door this morning alive. Jonah's, Jonah's not focusing in this prayer on his own redemption as far as regeneration goes. He wants reconciliation. He wants restoration. He is longing for that, which had been separated by his sin. His communion with God because of sin was distance. And when Jonah had to think about it, when he was about to die in disobedience, he had to face that reality, and it frightened him. So don't misunderstand the text when we read this in a few moments. Jonah wasn't praying for regeneration here. He was chosen by God. He was an elect prophet of God. He was praying for restoration. When you sin, do you pray like Jonah? This is one of those places where we could say, pray like Jonah. Follow Jonah's pattern. I believe God wants us to learn from Jonah this morning. Because this prayer is filled with deep desperation for a restored fellowship with his God. Do we sound like Jonah when we have allowed sin to separate our communion with God? Do we sound desperate for reconciliation and this kind of restoration that Jonah is crying out for? I want my fellowship with you, Jesus, back the way it used to be. That my sin seems to have seems to have caused a chasm between you and I. It's not that he is distant from us, but we have distanced ourselves from our Redeemer. If we really appreciated our redemption and our Redeemer, we would sound desperate for reconciliation and restoration of our fellowship when we sin. Any sin should cause us to be as desperate as Jonah here. I was thinking about an illustration of what a desperate cry for restored fellowship sounds like, and God gave me an illustration last night. God worked in an amazing way to give me an illustration of what that sounds like, to hear a desperate cry for restoration and fellowship when Isaiah, my baby, woke up in the middle of the night, and his mama had turned off the nightlight by accident, and he woke up in darkness and in deep 
despair. And he cried out for restoration of fellowship. And it wasn't the typical cry. It was one of fear. It was one of sorrow. He can't find mama. How desperately we need to be longing for our fellowship with God when we sin. When we feel distant because of sin. I believe God wants us to learn from Jonah's desperation this morning. Darkness and deep distress over sin, our sin, should lead us to what Jonah desired in this prayer. Here's where your outline comes in. Deep distress over our sin should make us desperate for, number one, deep reconciliation or deep restoration with our God. Deep restoration with our God. Number two, deep reflection about our God should also be what we are desperate for when we recognize what our sin has done, this desperate condition we are in. Number three, deep distress over our sin should make us desperate for deep adoration of our God, our Redeemer. Deep adoration. Now we're going to look at the text this morning. We're going to read Jonah 2, 1 through 9, so we can hear God speak to us in his context of this message to Israel, to the redeemed throughout the world. Whoever reads this text, God is speaking to you in the context of of Jonah's situation, but to be applied in our lives. And understand when we read this, this prayer of Jonah is composed in the midst of deep distress over his sin. We, we talked about this the last couple of times when we're going through this. He is in the midst of sorrow because what his sin has cost him. And he is in the most wretched of places. He is in the place that he describes as hell or as the grave, surrounded with death and corruption and the stench of death and corruption. He is desperate for air, desperate for fellowship. He is separated from all people. He can turn to nobody but God. That's where God wanted him to be. Just understand a lesson in that. Sometimes that's the reason you go through desperation. Sometimes that's why God allows you even to be disobedient, just like Jonah. It's to bring you back to the realization you need God. You need His restoring mercy. You had thought you could do it on your own, but when you did it on your own, you're like Jonah, you went down, down, down. And only God can pull you up. That's why I believe that God allows the stress in our lives as believers. So we come to the bottom and we have to look up to our God and our Redeemer. We have to be desperate for Him like Jonah. Hear the the deep distress in Jonah's heart as I read this text. Verse 17, chapter 1 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's a summary of what we're about to read in detail. And remember, he doesn't go immediately into the fish's mouth. He is drowning. He is sinking. His lungs are filling with fluid. He is probably passing out. Plunged into the depths of the, the sea. He is scared. He is frightened. He is facing his death. It's real. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, verse 1 says, His God. Now the Lord is His God. From the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. 
just amazement in this. Out of the belly of Sheol I screamed, I cried, and you heard my voice. You heard me, distinctly me, your servant who is in disobedience. You actually heard a wretch like me. This is all praiseworthy right here. I could preach this again. He hears us. Not because of the good in us, but because of the work that Christ has done for us. Here's how God works even in Jonah's life to use this situation for his glory and for Jonah's good. Where you cast me into the deep, Jonah confesses God is just in his judgment. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now he is desperate. He is desperate for restoration. Yet, God's word is flooding his soul. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple because that's what he was taught to do from God's word. We'll see that later. He was taught to do this. And it's a by faith moment for Jonah. It's by faith, in spite of my circumstances, I'm looking to you to restore my fellowship. This prayer has nothing to do immediately with Jonah asking to be cast out of this fish. He never really asked for that at all. That's not the subject of Jonah's prayer, though I'm sure it's in his mind he would like to be out of this fish. That's not the subject. The subject of the prayer is restoration, reflection about God's mercy, adoration of God's salvation that redeems his soul and also restores his fellowship. That's what the subject is in a nutshell. So he looks again toward, is actually how you could translate that, toward your holy temple. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around or about my head at the roots of the mountains. He's saying, Basically, when I was cast into the sea, I was drowning and I sank to the very bottom in the pitch black, frightening bottom of this death trap. Yet you brought yet you brought up my life from the pit. How did he do that? He sent the fish. He appointed the fish. The fish came in, the divine submarine, and swallowed him up and picked him up and restored his physical life as well as restored his spiritual relationship with God. Oh Lord, my God, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And I pray that is the case when you and I are caught in our sin and dropping to the bottom. Instead of moaning in our sin and moaning about our sin or trying to get ourselves out of our sin, we instead immediately remember our God, our Redeemer, and we turn back to Him. He turns back by looking again toward the Holy Temple in verse 7. In verse 8 he says, Those who pay regard to vanity or vain idols, paganism, pagan thought, worldly wisdom, as Nate brought up last week, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's it. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you 
What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. An amazing text. The weight of it was, was on my mind all day yesterday, thinking about how this vexed Jonah's soul. And I thought, do we feel like this? And I'm afraid sometimes we don't. You know, Jonas looks like an extreme example because of the nature of going to Nineveh and being a special sent prophet and so forth. But, you know, it's disobedience nonetheless. It doesn't matter what degree. God is not pleased with us when we disobey. And our disobedience causes us, whether we like to admit it or not, to act a lot like Jonah. Instead of turning to our God immediately, we flee and find ourselves caught up in, in the worldly business around us or in other things to distract us. And sometimes it takes this divine act of mercy and discipline of God to bring us down to where we have to stop and say, this is what I should have done. Jonah finally prays. Jonah finally recognizes, I am in desperate need of my merciful Savior. And I don't know that we think about it in those terms like we ought. Maybe you do, and I hope you do. But when you think about the, the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, who came and died upon a cross in our place, and then we take sin lightly, we trample underfoot that precious blood. And we need to be like Jonah here. Instead, we need to be desperate. Desperate for restoration. I mean, do we do we long for that? Do do you long when you when you sin and you feel the weight of your sin? You know you've offended God. You know that you are forgiven. You know that you have redemption in Christ. But do you immediately find yourself just in this horrible situation in your heart, saying, "God, why did I do this? I want your essence. I want your loving kindness. I need you. I can't go another step without you. I'm desperate for you." I think that's what we should learn today, whether we express my notes or not. In Jonah 2, 4-6, we see that deep distress over our sins should make us desperate for deep restoration of our God. He said, I'm driven away from your sight. This horrified Jonah. But then, in the same breath, he says, yet I shall again... Look upon your holy temple. This could be an implication that he is by faith trusting that God will bring him out of this fish and one day bring him back to the temple in Jerusalem. That could be a possibility, but I really don't think that's what it's talking about in context. I think he's simply by faith saying, even though I am in sin against you, you are pursuing me in love with this fish. And I am now able to come again to you, toward you, and beseech you that you would restore our fellowship. Don't let me die in this condition. Do you want to die in disobedience even though you're forgiven? No. No. How horrible to think that our Lord would come back today and we're entertaining lust and anger and bitterness. Yes, we're forgiven. But are we glorifying our Redeemer. When you say, well done, it becomes. Jonah said, here's how separate I feel from you. 
And here's what has separated me. It's basically my sin. And the water sort of describes his condition that, that separates him. It makes him feel alone. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, the very bottom of the sea is what he means. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I am in the tomb. You have shut the door. That's what my sin feels like it has done. Yet, there's that word yet again. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. I love, this is such a a great example of God bringing repentance into this man's life. God is the one doing this work. He is changing Jonah from saying, I worship the God, to saying, I need my God here. Verse 4, he felt like he had been completely abandoned, but in reality, it was Jonah who had abandoned God. He knew that. Yet he felt the separation and it frightened him. He knew that his sin had severed sweet communion with his Savior. And he was distressed about it. Are we, are we distressed about our sin? I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm going to talk about not self-condemning, not guilt-laden. But are you distressed? Are you sorrowful of how your sin severs that sweet communion with your Savior? And aren't you glad when you think about this? Even though sometimes when we're not faithful, God is faithfully working in our behalf. Just like you with Jonah, preparing a great fish experience to bring us back to the reality that He is going to restore our communication lines by humbling us and showing us that He is working. He could have worked to bless us. Instead, He's having to discipline us at this point, which is a blessing in disguise. And he's working to open up our fellowship and bring us back to our realization that we need this communion by exposing our sinfulness and then leading us to his grace. Look what 1 Kings says about this. 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, this temple. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the temple, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, the temple. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, the temple. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. This is what Jonah is doing. He is grabbing hold of the truth that he learned here. In 1 Kings, he learned through other messengers of God, Jonah is looking toward the place that God dwells. Jonah is looking toward God's temple. The very place where God will receive the prayers of His people. And that God's presence is constantly abiding. 
Jonah needed to look here because he felt like that God's presence was severed from him. He felt like he was drowning in his disobedience, in sin. He felt abandoned. We feel like that sometimes, don't we? But in reality, we can do what Jonah did, except we can look to the fulfillment of what the temple represented. We can look to the true temple, where the true sacrifice was made. We can look to Jesus Christ, and we can find out there that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. God has not left you. That's good news. Even when we're in sin, God has not left us. His salvation is probably at work sanctifying us, causing us to look back to Him to restore our fellowship. You know what I I love about Jonah's situation is? Jonah's in a place where he cannot do any legalistic works to earn God's favor. He is stripped naked and bare and without any good thing to bring to God except a broken heart and repentance. There's no good works. The good works would only lead him to legalism anyway. He would think that what he did pleased God and God will restore him because of what he did. Instead, God is saying, I'm the one restoring you. And Jonah is saying, it has to be you because I was at the pit. I couldn't save myself. You have restored my fellowship by sending this divine covering, atonement, if you will, to surround me, protect me. If, If you've been a Christian long at all, you have felt like Jonah. And, and you've felt at times when you sin that you are separated and abandoned from God. But that doesn't have to be the case. I think we should struggle over our sin. I think we should recognize our sin as an offense to God and battle with our sin by the Holy Spirit's work in us, opening our eyes to what it cost Jesus to die for us, and then rejoicing in the fact that we are forgiven not trying to get ourselves out of our sinful condition by trying to do three good works to make up for the bad. That's legalism. Instead, we need to remember that our battle with sin was fought by Jesus Christ, and He has won it. He has conquered in our place. So don't let, it could easily happen here, don't let guilt consume you, be consumed by the grace that was given to us by looking to Jesus. Deep distress is supposed to do that in our lives as believers. It's supposed to bring us to restoration, not condemnation. Deep distress over our sin should break our hearts that we've offended a holy and righteous God who sent His Son to die in our place. And that should not lead us to condemnation. That should lead us to rejoicing and restoration. Our sin should lead us to our sin bearer. Right? That's good news. It does. God does not waste anything in our life, including our indwelling sin. He uses it to point us back to Him. Don't let sin in your life cause you to wallow in condemnation. Once you've confessed your sin and you've trusted in God, trusted in His mercy, trusted that you have been restored by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, Rejoice. You have been restored, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Romans 7, 21-8-4. Paul understood this. Paul understood 
the desperate condition that sin puts you in. And the distress of sin in his own life broke his heart. But notice where the Apostle Paul goes when he is distressed over his sin. He doesn't go to condemnation. He goes to the cross of Calvary where there was reconciliation and restoration of his weary soul. Look what he says in 721. And this is the heart of every one of you here today if you have been a believer for any period of time. You've been with Paul here. You've been with Jonah in the deep as well. Paul says, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight, or my soul delights, in the law of God, the moral law of God, in my inner being, in my soul. I delight in the law of God inside, but I see in my members, that is his flesh, another law waging war. It's not the moral law. This is the law of the indwelling sin that he's battling with against the law of my mind. There's a war going on. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, that is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's exactly what Jonah is crying out. Who will deliver this wretched man from the depths? The answer is the same. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, Lord, deliver me, right? So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my soul, but my, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But, he says in verse 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in in who? In Christ? No, in us. In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. By God's grace, Paul says, and what Jonah will declare as well, is that that basically, by God's grace, there is now no condemnation. There is only transformation. Restoration. We have peace with God. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That will change the way we view our flesh. The way we view our sin. That's what happens in Jonah's life. He is transformed from the inside out, not by legalism, not by rituals, not by what he could do by his self-determination. What did his self-determination get Jonah anyway? Self-determination got Jonah death almost, right? It drove him downward. Destruction was all he earned through his own achievements. He needed redemption from above. Look back in Jonah 2.6, the last part, B. You brought me up, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Here God reveals that Jonah was transformed. Jonah's attitude has changed. His view has changed. God, it's you. You're the only one who can do this. You bring me up. And and what he did was as as he prayed, as he's down on his face, if you will, in the muck, he is praying. And his prayers 
go up to God, and God draws him up out of his despair, gives him hope. God hears him. Okay, that's significant. That means there is no separation, that even though he feels separated by his sin, he finds out that God is with him. God hears him. God has not abandoned the sinner. God loves the sinner. And he sends great, miraculous redemption to sinners, doesn't he? So that we can call on him. And we can be drawn up out of despair. Now, again, notice, he's not drawn up out of the fish yet. That's not what he's talking about. I think it's what makes this prayer so amazing. Jonah is not desperate for a rescue. He is desperate for a restoration with his Savior. He's desperate for God. He is no longer turning inward towards selfishness. He is desperate for what he needs most, which is fellowship with his God. Look in Jonah 2, 7 and 8. Here we see the second point. The deep distress over our sins should make us desperate for deep reflection about our God. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I recalled or I reflected or I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, this is significant. When when he says here, let me, let me get over there myself. When he says, my life was fading away. What this, what this can be translated to say is this. When my soul was rolled up internally in anguish, when my soul was recoiling on itself and fainting away, I, instead of focusing on my misery, I recalled your mercy. I remembered the Lord, the one who had called me into ministry, the one who was working to redeem him from his sin. In this text, he says, when I was fainting away, I had nowhere else to turn but to you, God, in faith. Jonah, I think, understood something. When he's talking about his soul fainting away, he's actually even talking about his, I think, physical condition to some degree here. He knew that in this fish, whether he knew it was a fish or not at this point, I don't know, but when what he did know was whatever was around his feet, whatever was around his neck, that it was it was not comfortable. It was full of corruption and death, and the stench of that was everywhere. And he recognized that this condition he was in was going to eventually erode his life. The stomach acids would eventually digest this man. So I think what Jonah's acknowledging here is his own demise. He's going to die. And he recognizes in his death and his disobedience that brought him there that he is no better than this corrupt material all around him in the belly of this fish. He could not do anything to appease God at this point. The only thing he could do is turn to God and reflect on God's mercy. Trust in what God does for wretches like you and me. We need to learn to do that when we are caught up in the midst of our sin as well. You don't need to think about sin this way. You don't need to think about sin when you're caught up in the midst of your sin. You don't need to think about it as, well, once I wrangle myself out of this condition, then I'll turn to God. Then I'll make sure all this, this fellowship is good. I'll be back in church. I'll be reading the Word. That's not when you need to turn. Because you can't get to that point on your own. 
There is no way to pull yourself up because your condition, apart from God's mercy, is like Jonah's. It's fainting away. You're weak and incapable. You cannot even... You cannot even refuse sin on your own. That is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in you. He makes it repulsive. He illuminates what sin did to Jesus. So what we need to do in the midst of our distress, we need to reflect on God's grace that came to us in Christ. That's really what Jonah does in verse 7. When it says that he reflects on the Holy Temple, it's the Lord's Holy Temple. He, He does that because... The temple is where God's mercy and presence was celebrated. And that's where hope was granted to sinners. Look at me in Exodus 30 to see that. Exodus 30, verse 1. Did you get what I said? He looks toward the temple, not because he he could offer up an actual literal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of some type. He couldn't do that. Remember, he's stripped of that. He can only look to the temple, let's say, by faith. Look to the place where God's mercy is spread abroad, where His atoning work is done, where He is present, where He gives hope to sinners. That's what Jonah does. Jonah is, whether he knows it or not, he's looking by faith to the work of the Messiah, Jesus, who would be the ultimate sacrifice and atone and bring mercy and bring the presence of God to sinners. But it says in 30, verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. Breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its moldings on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them. And they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrance incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Then catch verse 9 and 10. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron Aaron shall make, the high priest here, the, the priest, the Levite, shall make atonement on its horns once a year. You shall make an atonement once a year on the horns with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make covering or atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. It is most sacred to the Lord. Jonah's looking to that sacred place where atonement of sin brought fellowship to sinners with their God. There his sins, he knew, were covered. In the tabernacle and here in the temple, God had placed the mercy seat. And upon it, an atoning sacrifice would be offered each year to propitiate or satisfy God's wrath against Israel's sin temporarily. So it had to be repeated year after year. 
Because the Old Testament sacrifices, we know, had no actual power to take away our sin. They were foreshadows, though, of the one perfect sacrifice that was given by the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was given at the cross of Calvary in our place. Look at me what, at what Hebrews, 10, Hebrews 10, 10 says about that. This is important because, again, whether Jonah actually knows this or not, he doesn't know this in the full, fullest disclosure here, this is what, by faith, he is doing when he is in distress and he looks toward the temple of atonement, the temple where God's presence dwelt, where there was forgiveness for sinners. He is looking to the one that God would provide to ultimately satisfy all his wrath against all our sins, the Lord Jesus himself. Hebrews 10.10 talks about that. Or 10.11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's what we were talking about in Exodus. Which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. This means he's completed his work. It's finished. He sits down at the right hand of God, the place of authority. His work was done waiting for that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, that is the offering of Christ himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts, that is, in their desires, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near like Jonah with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what Jonah had to rely on. That God at His temple where He is known, where He is displayed, where He atones, God would cover His sins. Because Jonah couldn't bring anything to please God in his condition. He couldn't bring his credentials as a good prophet who's always obedient, could he? He had nothing good to bring to God. He only could bring his sin and his declaration that he needs restoration. He needs to reflect on God's greatness. As a believer, are we doing what Jonah does here? Are we reflecting when we sin, when we're caught in our sin? Do we reflect deeply on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? I mean, do you literally, I'm, literally do you stop when you say something you shouldn't say or see something you shouldn't see or partake of something you shouldn't partake of? Do you stop and reflect that Jesus was crucified for that? If you reflect on that long enough, you'll 
find that sin repulsive. You'll find sanctification is waiting for you. It'll be effectual. It'll make you more sensitive next time to the next sin that you have to confront. You're going to confront sin from here on out until glorification. But it's through this deep reflection on God's mercy you can be kept from sin a little more each day and drawn to Christ and His love. To do that, though, you have to trust in God's Word, not in your flesh that is fainting, right? You can't just trust Him. I'm going to gussy up some, some good old self-will and I'm going to fight sin. I'm not going to go to that place anymore. Well, that's okay. You don't go to that place anymore. There'll be a new place that your flesh will be drawn to. If you try to accomplish sanctification alone, by your own self-determination, you will find yourself completely frustrated and falling into legalism. Saying, Jesus, you did a lot, but I still need to do a little bit more on my own. Then I'll call on you once I get it worked out. That's legalism. That's trusting in what you can do. We need to put all of our trust in what God has provided in Christ. So, are you trusting in self-discipline, self-help, to remove sinful patterns in your life? Or are you reflecting on what God did through Christ? One leads to legalism. I'd say vain legalism. The other one leads to restoration and grace-driven praise and adoration and obedience. What Jonah was doing was in vain. So I find it interesting in verse 8 of Jonah 2.8. He makes this profession. And I, I read a lot of commentaries. Oh, let me tell you, I read a lot of commentaries on this verse. I probably read a, a stack of commentaries as tall as this pulpit on this verse. Half or more said, oh, he's just ridiculing those mariners, those dumb pagans. Oh, he's ridiculing the Ninevites. No, he's not doing that. I do not believe that. He's caught up in this distress over his own sin, and he is reflecting on his condition, not theirs. He's not pointing fingers, you know, look how bad those people were, God. They were really vain. No, he's comparing himself and Israel to pagans. And God would eventually rebuke them both, Jonah and Israel, by putting them under Assyrian captivity eventually. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of hesed, of God's mercy, steadfast love. Jonah's trust in his will and his power, he says, was completely vain and idolatrous at the core. I, the prophet of Israel, was like the pagan idolatry. I trusted in what I could provide, what I could do, I trusted in my discretion above God's discretion. He says, go to Nineveh. I said, I know a better path. That's really not what you want me to do. I am a special sent prophet to Israel. You're confused, God. And listen, when you try to go in other directions that God's calling you to go in, you're rejecting Hesed, the loving kindness of God. You see, Jonah could have went. Jonah could have went from the very beginning and prayed and rejoiced like he does here at the end. He could have done that in verse 3 of chapter 1. And he could have went to Nineveh under the blessing of God, rejoicing all the way. But instead he trusted in himself and it led him downward. 
Yet even in his downward spiral, we see God carried him upward, back to obedience. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Do you realize what, what Jonah was called to do was the greatest, apart from Jesus Christ, were the greatest miracles in the Bible. There is not anything that can compare to what happened in Nineveh through one Jew. And even in his disobedient condition, who went into this city full of, full of his enemies, walked through the city and preached a message about God's judgment to come and hope and mercy if you turn. He walks through this city and he's proclaiming this message because God brought him up and then God did a great miracle there. It is unmatched in any place in the Scripture that you find. Even on the day of Pentecost, you don't see the miracle take place that happened here in Nineveh because of God's God's loving kindness, His heaven. God saved 600,000 souls at the preaching of Jonah. There is not another miracle like that in the Bible. There is not. This one man did what the whole nation of Israel could not do on, with all of their strength and all their ability and all their willpower. They couldn't overcome the capital city of Assyria. One man sent by God, restored by God, rebuked by God, recommissioned by God, walks into the city of his enemies and brings them to their knees in repentance. Because Jonah was such a great guy? No. Because he had God's God's mercy was on John. That moves us to the next verse. Because this was an impossible task for a man in the flesh. But we know that what God did with Jonah declares the truth of what Jonah professes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not just Nineveh here, though. That's really not what he's talking about. He doesn't know he's going to Nineveh. Remember that. He thinks he's going to die. He's wanting to make sure his relationship with God is clean, is right, is restored. And he's reflecting on what God has done. That's what he's concerned with. That's what he's praising God about. He doesn't know the mission is going to be recommissioned to him. He's not out of the water yet. So third point we see in verse 9 is that deep distress over our sin should make us desperate for, number three, a deep adoration of our God or of our Redeemer, our Savior. Verse 9 says, after he has reflected on what God has done by drawing him out and causing him not to trust in vain idols any longer, but trust in the steadfast hope of his God, he says, with, with that on my mind, with reflecting on that, I say this, that I will now, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice. I will sacrifice to you. I'll sacrifice to you, not with a blood sacrifice, but with what I have. And all I have is what you have done in me. You have restored my mind, my understanding, my relationship. And so I'm going to rejoice with all I've got. That very mouth that was disobedient now wants to be obedient. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think you could look at that and think, restoration belongs to the Lord. He redeemed Jonah truly. And he loved Jonah <laughs> mercifully. But Jonah says salvation is from Yahweh. In verse 9, he offers up a sacrifice of 
thanksgiving. He's not thanking God that he's been delivered from the fish. Because he hasn't been delivered yet. Remember that. Oftentimes we read this story and we think, oh, this is all like, you know, he wrote this after he got out of the fish. Well, yeah, he wrote it when he got out of the fish. Because it wasn't exactly parchment and pen in the fish, right? But he was praying this while in the belly of the great fish under God's discipline. All he was reveling in here at this point was spiritual deliverance from guilt and shame and restoration to his God. Maybe there was the hope of deliverance from the fish, and I'm sure there was. I'm sure he wanted out. That's no doubt. But that's not what this is focused upon. This is focused upon God, not Jonah. Verse 9, Jonah's thanksgiving comes, if we see this correctly, in the form of a vow. He vows to declare. Now, it's, it's a vow. It's, it's like a covenant. It's like a promise. He vows to declare God's mercy. Now, again, commentary said, well, see, he's, he's saying that he's declaring he's going to go to Nineveh and he's going to do what God told him to do. Okay. Yeah, because God does do that. We know that happens. But we're reading ahead. He is saying, I promise in the belly of this fish or on dry land, either place, I'm going to give you thanks for you have restored my relationship, my fellowship with you. I know your hesed is on me. Your mercy is with me. You have not abandoned me. You have loved me with an everlasting love. You are keeping me. And I praise you for it with my lips. Jonah gives thanks to God for restoring him. And I think he, he does this so that he says, this like, like the prophet Isaiah, this, this dirty mouth of mine needs to be cleansed. And now that you've changed my heart, now you've changed what comes out of my mouth, I can now proclaim again the mercy of God if only in this fish. And in the midst of your sin, alone, in a place that would seem odd to you, do you ever stop and just begin to praise God? You should. Because that's what Jonah does. He has no audience. He's not trying to impress anybody except one. And he can't impress him anyway. All I can do is come to him as a beggar with his hands outstretched. I need hesed. I need mercy. If only for the little while I have left in this misery, let me sing to my death your glorious praise. If, if that's the way Jonah feels, how should we feel? You're not in the belly of a fish. You're receiving hesed every time you sin. God comes along in discipline and brings you back. Makes you feel the misery of your sin for a bit and turn to Christ and remember and rejoice in what He did. And then we need to be able to, I think, be like Jonah here and rejoice in adoration. And what I think is interesting here is, you see Jonah's adoration, his thanksgiving, and his vow, his dedication, they flowed out of his restoration. He was first drawn up by God. He was first protected by God. God heard his prayers. God was restoring fellowship. And as a result, adoration and dedication flowed out of restoration. It didn't come to get him restoration. In other words, he didn't try to adore God and do sacrifices and say ritual prayers to be restored. His adoration and dedication didn't cause restoration. That came from mercy. That came from God's direction toward a sinner. 
That's the way it should work in our lives. We should be adoring and dedicating our lives to God constantly as a result of our restoration, because of our salvation and God's work of sanctification. Out of those comes adoration and praise and commitment. He was committed as long as he lived in the belly of that fish to declare salvation belongs to the Lord. He was preaching the gospel to himself until he died. That was his commitment. He was going to not moan and whine about why he was there. He confessed he was there because of his sin. Now he was declaring he has been forgiven, he has been restored, and he wants to praise his God until he goes to heaven. That's what he's doing. When he says this declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord, that, that, that was taught to him in the strangest school possible, wasn't it? In the school of discipline, he learns to reflect on what God has accomplished for him, apart from his rituals. And he is rejoicing in that. And he is saying that, God, whatever happens to me, whether I die in this fish or not, I am going to give you the glory. God receives all the glory here. Jonah didn't contribute to anything that was going on in that fish, except the sin, right? The confession God was bringing about in his heart, the restoration God brought about, everything that's working there is working for God's glory and Jonah's good. And that's the way it is when we sin as believers as well. Remember that. He is working. He loves us too much to leave us in our sin, so he will restore us through discipline so that we will declare what Jonah says. Salvation belongs to God. Restoration belongs to God. All of our adoration belongs to God. Jonah is restored to his position as a prophet, a spokesman of God. And Jonah is now dedicating himself to reflecting God's mercy until he dies, if only in the fish. Yet we know that God did restore more than his soul. He restored his life. And God used his work of mercy in Jonah's life to restore many souls in Nineveh, bringing them to salvation. Jonah was simply saying here, I vow to proclaim and reflect God's mercy to the end. I think that should be our proclamation. I think this is what we should be saying. I'll give you something to think about. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, which I believe most here are, if, and since you are a Christian, you made vows just like Jonah when you were regenerated. You made a vow to the Lord of your salvation. If you confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your salvation, you have vowed to proclaim that he is master over your life and your death. When he calls you to serve, you are to obey. When he calls you to avoid certain things, you are to obey. Because here's, here's some of the things you vowed when you confess Jesus as master. He is master. We don't make Jesus Lord. We know that here, right? He is the sovereign king. He is the creator of this universe. He is Lord. But when he causes us to see that by regenerating us through his gracious work, 
We declare that with our mouth, as Romans 10 talks about. We declare that Jesus is Koryos, Master. That's, that's, that's a weighty declaration. That means He is the Master of everything in my life, from my occupation to my entertainment to my ministry. By the way, we're all called. When we're called to salvation, we're called to ministry. And here's what you vowed when you declared Jesus as Lord. You have vowed, number one, go wherever He calls you to minister. You are an ambassador for the resurrected Jesus. And when He calls you to go, preach the gospel, declare the truth, reflect His glory, you are to go. It doesn't matter where it is. Go. Number two, you have vowed as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, to pursue holiness. You are to pursue what pleases God. You are empowered to pursue that because the Holy One lives within you. The Spirit of God points you in the right direction. He is our guide. He directs us to the Word, and the Word teaches us what to avoid, teaches us what to run after. Number three, you have vowed as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have vowed to continually seek fellowship with the saints, faithfully, equipping them, encouraging them, serving them, being disciplined sometimes by them, out of joy because God is working through them to care for you. Number four, you have vowed as a follower of the Lord, you have vowed to love your enemies by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to them constantly. The call to evangelism. Like John. I think the Apostle Paul understood our vow. I know he understood our vow, and I think he understood Jonah's vow. Because he said this in Philippians chapter 1. He said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's our vow. Are we living... Think about this. Are we living in light of our vow to the Lord Jesus? Are we living in such a way that death would be gain? Are you living in such a way at this moment that if you died immediately, it's gain because Jesus has been pleased with your life. He's working in your life. Your vows are being kept because of the work that He's doing in you. Or are we living in such a way that death would be regretful, like Jonah? Are we pursuing the very things we promised God we would do by grace through His Spirit's work in us? Are we pursuing that? Because if we are and we die in that, it is gain. It will not be burn up on that day. On that day when we stand at the Bama seat, he can look at our work and say, that, that reflects me. That, that pointed to me. But the other things, it's wood, hey, stubble, consume, waste. That's regret. Jonah was living with regret. And God brought him down low so that he would look up for mercy. So he would change the way he lived that short time that he had left in his own opinion. And Jonah was that concerned that even though it may have been just moments or hours, he could have been passing out in and out of consciousness, thinking he's going to die in this fish. 
Yet even those last breaths, he wants to declare salvation belongs to the Lord. Bring glory to the Lord. That's his desire. And that's the desire of this rebellious prophet. And it reflects the mercy of a saving, redeeming God. What should our response be? To know the fact that Jesus Christ is the one he was calling out to. He is the one who redeemed us and brought us God's mercy. I think we need to pray like Jonah. We need to pray for a deep desperation to live and die for the glory of our King. Because our salvation, like Jonah's, belongs to God. Our restoration belongs to God. Our life belongs to God. We need to pray to have a deep desperation, like Jonah, to glorify God with our life, whatever's left of it. Pray you reflect on that. Think about that. Live in such a way that you would have no regret, but gain when you die.